Mark chapter 8, Jesus says, he who wishes to save his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What a wonderful reminder that our lives are designed to be an offering to the Lord Jesus. If you have your Bibles, I ask you to open up to Daniel chapter 5. We're going to read all of Daniel chapter 5, so you'll have to bear with us this morning as it's a fairly lengthy passage that we'll be reading. Daniel chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles. He was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand when Belshazzar tasted the wine. He gave orders to bring gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem in order that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on plaster of the walls of the king's palace, and the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. And the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began to knock together. And the king called aloud to bring the conjurers and the Chaldeans and the diviners, and the king spoke and said to these wise men of Babylon, any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me will be clothed with purple, and have a necklace of gold around his neck, and have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all of the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription to make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, his face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. And the queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles, the queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because of the extraordinary spirit of knowledge and insight, and interpretation of dreams, and explanations, and enigma, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought before the king, and the king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you the Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I have heard about you, that is, the spirit of gods that is in you. And that illumination and insight and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me. But they could not declare its interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you and that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now if you are able to read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have the authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourselves, or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make its interpretation known to him. 
O King, the Most High God, granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. And because of the grandeur which he bestowed upon him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed, and whomever he wished, he spared alive. And whomever he wished, he elevated, and whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became proud, so that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne, and his glory was taken away from him. He was driven away from mankind, and his heart was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. And he was given grass to eat like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind, and that he sets over you whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all of this. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron, wood and stone, which, we do, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whom hands are your life, breath, and your ways. You have not glorified. Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. Now this is the inscription that was written out. Mine, mine, tekel, epsharon. And this is the interpretation of the message. Mine, God has put, God has numbered your kingdom and put it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave orders, and they clothed Daniel with purple, put a necklace of gold around his neck, and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Let's pray. Oh God, may we hear your word this morning. May we see this morning the temporalness of earthly kings and kingdoms. And may we see the eternalness of your word and your kingdom. Lord, may we be reminded, Lord, that if we seek this world and all this world has to offer, Lord, we will lose our lives. But if we lose ourselves, for the gospel. Lord, then we may be like Daniel. We may be like the faithful servants that we see portrayed in your word, for whom you bestow blessings upon blessings. Lord, may you find us faithful this morning. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen. As we continue our narrative of the book of Daniel, we get to Daniel 5 and we read Belshazzar the king. And if you're reading the, the narrative of Daniel chapter 4 and chapter 5, you get to chapter 5 and you're like, wait a second, where did Nebuchadnezzar go, right? 
I mean, we were just talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has been the king. Uh, you know, we see Daniel chapter 1, Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 3, Daniel chapter 4. It's all about Nebuchadnezzar. It's all about his pride. It's all about God humbling him. It's all about what God is saying and what God is doing to the king in Babylon. And then all of a sudden, chapter 5 starts, and we're like, who's this guy? And where did Nebuchadnezzar go? And then we read in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar was his father. But let me, let me clarify the language there. It's not that Nebuchadnezzar was his dad, but that Nebuchadnezzar was his predecessor. Nebuchadnezzar was the king that was before him. This is not Nebuchadnezzar's direct descendant. Uh, this is rather uh, probably a, a descendant of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's, one of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, generals uh, who, takes the, who takes the throne of Babylon uh, during some infighting. Uh, but for the sake of the author, and what the author is saying is that, that Nebuchadnezzar was the preceding king. Nebuchadnezzar was the, the, the king who preceded Belshazzar. And so when it says, your father Belshazzar, your father Belshazzar, this is not Belshazzar's or Nebuchadnezzar's son. This is not a little Nebuchadnezzar. This would be the, the king or the monarch that, that came after Nebuchadnezzar. Now, there is an abruptness to this text. It starts out and it says, Belshazzar the king. And Nebuchadnezzar was the king. And so this ought to serve as a reminder to us, church, that Daniel is not about a story of Babylon and or Persia. This is not a narrative of the Babylonian reign. This is written to an exiled people, to Judah, to bring them encouragement. It is written to an exiled, uh, to an exiled people to remind them that there was a God in Babylon there is a God in Persia, and there is a God who is going to redeem his people. And so as we read this, the abruptness of the text ought to, ought to, to, to jar us into a reminder that, oh yeah, we're not talking about Babylon. This is not a history of the Babylonian Empire, but rather this is an encouragement to an exiled people. Now, I want us to, to look at the continued theme that we've seen throughout the book of Daniel so far. Daniel chapter 1, go with me if you will. To Daniel chapter 1, verse 21. I believe it's verse 21. <clears throat> we get to the end of Daniel chapter 1, and we are reminded, we are reminded in Daniel chapter 1, verse 21, and Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Now, Cyrus would be the king of what? Persia. Very good. You were paying attention. See, you learned something. So, Cyrus would be the king of Persia, and it says that, that Daniel remained until the king of Persia. Now, during chapter 1, who's, who's in charge? The Babylonians, right? And so, at the end of chapter 1, we are reminded there's this theme that tells us that Babylon will fall, and there will be another king, and there will be another monarch, there will be another, another people group that will reign and that will rule. Yet Daniel and the people of God and God will remain. And so in Daniel chapter 1, verse 21, we are told that, that Babylon will fall, yet God will remain. In chapter 2, we get the interpretation of the dream. And what is the interpretation of the dream? That there was this giant golden statue, and that that statue is going to be cut down. And that statue, we are told in the text, that that statue is Babylon and that Babylon will fall, and that there will be another kingdom, and it will fall, and there will be another kingdom, and it will fall, and there will be another kingdom, and it will fall, but God and his people will remain forever. Are you seeing a theme? 
Are you seeing a, a theme that, that, that permeates the book of Daniel? Chapter 3, we see the story of the fiery furnace. And we see Nebuchadnezzar erecting this statue and, and, and sending this decree that, that all of the people of Babylon will bow before the king and bow before this statue. And yet we see God essentially neutering the power of the king. Because the king says, if anybody doesn't bow, I'll have them thrown into the fiery furnace. And they're thrown into the fiery furnace and God preserves them. God shows up in the midst of the furnace. God shows up in the midst of the fire. And so we are seeing that even in Babylon, even in the most powerful empire in the world at that time, that, that they are powerless to destroy what God intends to do. And then we see in chapter 4 that Nebuchadnezzar himself, the king of Babylon, is kicked out of the palace and is sent to graze in a field like an ox. God, not only does he neuter the decree of the king, he deposes and removes the king from his palace. In chapter 5, Babylon falls, yet God and his people remain. There is a theme that, that finds itself weaving through the fabric of the book of Daniel, and it's that God humbles kings. John chapter 4, I'm sorry, James chapter 4, verse 6, it tells us that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Daniel chapter 4, verse 37, we see Nebuchadnezzar himself making this proclamation. Nebuchadnezzar says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the king of heaven, for all of his works are true and his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. God humbles kings. He humbles rulers. He humbles generals. This is his mode of operation. We remember the story of the Exodus. We remember Moses going to Pharaoh and saying, Pharaoh, God has sent me to deliver my people. And Pharaoh says, you're not leaving this place with those Israelite, with those Hebrew slaves. And so God sends plague after plague after plague, ten plagues, humbling Pharaoh, cutting him down, delivers his people from Egypt. And then we remember the story of Naaman, the arrogant general who was, who was stricken with leprosy. And then his young Hebrew servant girl said, by the way, there's a prophet in Israel who can, who can take care of that leprosy problem. And so he sends his servants to, to, to fetch the prophet of God, and the prophet of God doesn't even meet him at the door. He says, go take a bath in the Jordan River. And he is, in Naaman, the proud, arrogant general, is indignant. The Jordan River, why would I go take a bath in the Jordan River? Are not, are not all of the, the, the rivers on, on the rivers in my home country, are they not, not better than the Jordan River? And yet he goes and he takes a bath in the Jordan River and God heals him of his leprosy. God has a way of humbling. God has a way of humbling kings and generals. We remember Haman, the general, the Persian general, whom God would humble. He builds these, these, 
gallows to hang his archenemy Mordecai. And that very night, the queen approaches the king and says, Oh, by the way, I'm a Hebrew, I'm a Jew. And your general, Haman, desires to kill Mordecai and exterminate all the Jewish people. And those very gallows that Haman had built to hang Mordecai became the very gallows that he himself hung. All throughout Scripture, God humbles the king and the generals, reminding them that, that he that thinks he stands should take heed lest he fall. Belshazzar has this, this feast. And it's very possible that this feast is, 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 a, uh, is a feast, uh, one of the celebrating one of the gods or one of the deities there in Babylon. And as he's celebrating, he's celebrating, the scripture tells us in verse, uh, verse 1 that he's celebrating, um, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, that he is celebrating in the presence of his, of his uh, concubines and his, uh, his leaders and his, his wives. And there are a thousand people there and he's celebrating. And then he gets this grand idea. He says, hey, go and get me all of the gold and all of the vessels and all of that which came out of the temple of God in Jerusalem. And bring them here to me, and we will we will incorporate them into our into our feast, into our celebration of debauchery and idolatry, as we as we drink wine from them, and as we pray and give praise to to our gods and to our deities. And so he, Belshazzar, begins by demeaning the vessels of God, and in that sense, as they demean the vessels of God, they are essentially demeaning the God of Israel. They are defacing and, and, and disgracing the God of Israel. That is their, their only way to, to, to demean and deface and, and disgrace the God of Israel, is to demean and disgrace the things of God and that which represents God, the people of God. So it's interesting in the midst of this demeaning, in the midst of this, this disgracing of God's vessels and of the, the God of Israel, that God immediately brings Belshazzar to instant sobriety. Look at verse 5 and 6. Actually, go up to verse 4. And they drank the wine, and they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. So they are they're giving praise, and they're giving homage to all of these lesser gods. And as they are, verse 5, Suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Verse 6. The king's face grew pale. And his thoughts alarmed him. And his hip joints went slack and his knees began to knock together. Chris, do you have the, the ESV version of verse 6? I want us to see the, the, the Aramaic language here. Uh, in verse 6, it doesn't say... Uh, in the ESV, it doesn't say that his hip joints went slack and his knees began knocking, but the ESV version says something a little bit different. It says that his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. What the, the actual Aramaic language does there in verse 6 is it says that his lower extremities lost all, he lost all of control of his lower extremities. The Many scholars believe and many interpreters believe that not only did the king fall to the ground, but as he lost all of his use of his lower extremities, that the king very possibly soiled himself. 
And so as the king is sitting there and he is, he is disgracing and demeaning the God of Israel, God shows up and begins writing on the wall. And the king's face becomes pale as if he has seen a ghost. And then I believe that he soiled himself. He fell onto the ground. God has a way of bringing us to sobriety whenever, whenever we, are, we are in the midst of, of idolatry, we are in the midst of, of immorality, we are in the midst of unrighteousness, we are in the midst of, of disobeying God. He has a way of getting our attention. He has a way of, of bringing us into a realization of our sin and bringing us into a realization of, of our disobedience, much in the very same way that our earthly parents do. Yesterday... I'm sorry, on Friday, <clears throat> Nicholas uh, came outside. I was working outside, and, and, and he came outside, and he said, he said, Dad, can I have a snack? I said, no, we're fixing to eat supper. You can't have a snack. And about 38 seconds later, I walked in the, I, I walked in the house because I had to get something. And Nicholas is, is in the dining room hiding in the corner, and he hears the door open, and he immediately takes off to the back of the house. And as he takes off to the back of the house, I say, Nicholas, John, come here. And he comes, to the, he comes to me with his mouth full of food and with popcorn kernels in the corner of his mouth. And he knew that, that I have just been busted. And, and this is not going to end well. And, and so go to your room. And I walk in the room, and he's got his pants around his ankles. And I said, what are you doing? He goes, I know I'm getting a spanking. <laughs> and when, when he realized that, that, he had, that he had completely defied me and completely been disobedient, he knew and there was a way that, that our earthly parents have of getting our attention. If, if our earthly parents have that ability to get our attention... How much more so our Heavenly Father? Here, God gets the attention of Belshazzar. He brings him to instant sobriety. But I want us to notice Belshazzar's response. He turns to that which fails him over and over and over again. Look at verse 7. Then the king called out, bring the conjurers and the Chaldeans and the diviners. And the king spoke to all the wise men of Babylon. Has this ever been beneficial for the Babylonians? Has this ever worked? No. But he goes to it time and time and time again. It's a good thing we're not like those Babylonians. It's a good thing that we don't continue to do things that cause us harm and that prove to be no effect and to, that, 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 that prove to be, to be ineffective time and time again. It's a good thing that, that we're not like those Babylonians. Don't we find ourselves, don't we find ourselves over and over and over again turning to that which, which proves to be fruitless and ineffective? Whenever God brings to us Instant sobriety. He gets our attention. What is our immediate response? Oftentimes it's not repentance. Oftentimes it's not brokenness. Oftentimes it is just 
how Belshazzar responds. In arrogance and pride, I can fix it myself. Let me do it on my own. God has brought him to the place of helplessness. Notice the irony. Belshazzar has demeaned Daniel's God. And he has demeaned Daniel's status, yet he seeks Daniel's help. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar left, Daniel was in a place of authority. He was in, he was over all of the, the administrative responsibilities of all of Babylon. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Ananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they all had, had positions of authority in Babylon. Well, here, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah aren't even mentioned, and, and Daniel is probably well down the pecking order of, of administrative responsibility because there is another king that is in charge. There's another coach that is in charge. He's fired his offensive coordinator. He's fired his defensive coordinator, and he's got a whole new staff. Daniel has been, his status, his administration, his, his, his power, his authority has been reduced, has been diminished. And not only that, the king has taken and he has disgraced and demeaned Daniel's God. And then he calls on Daniel to help. Go with me, if you will, to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to begin reading in verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Look at verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Verse 22, the Jews asked for a sign and the Greeks searched for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. I want us to look at verse 23. We preach Christ crucified to the Jewish audience. I want you to hear what this says. We preach a crucified Messiah. We preach someone, your Messiah, who is to deliver you. We preach a defeated a cursed Messiah. Because they read in Deuteronomy that, that cursed is the man who hangs from a tree. And he hangs from a tree, not, that is not what curses him. He hangs from a tree because he has been cursed by God. If he has been cursed by God, he is going to die a criminal's death. If he is going to, to, to disgrace and disobey the law of God, then he is, going to be, he is going to be executed and he is going to hang from a tree. And it is his hanging from a tree that is a demonstration of him being accursed. And so... Paul is saying to the Jews, we preach to you a crucified, we preach to you a cursed Messiah. Someone who is crucified, someone who hangs from a tree, someone who has been cursed from God, he is that which is your Messiah. It's, it's, it makes no sense. It's ironic. How could someone who has been killed, someone who has been cursed, someone who is is not valiant, is not victorious, how can that be our Messiah? Belteshazzar comes to Daniel. How can this man, 
whom God, whom, whom his God I am demeaning, I am defacing, I am disgracing, and, and who, whom I have, have, have disgraced his status and demeaned his status, how can this man be my Savior? Our only hope, church, is a crucified Messiah. Our only hope is this, this Jesus whom was crucified. I want us to go back to Daniel 5 and I want us to see Daniel's response. Daniel chapter 5, the king calls for Daniel. The queen, probably his mother, not his wife, because in chapter 1 it tells us, I'm sorry, in verse uh, 1 and 2 it says that he was eating with his wives. And so if this was his wife, she would have been in there with him. This is probably his mother that comes in there. Uh, and she says, oh, by the way, there's a guy named Daniel who can answer this question for you. And so he calls for Daniel. And the king says, Daniel, explain to me what's going on. He, he insults him. He says, are you Daniel that, that was exiled, that, that was removed from Judah? Well, explain to me what's going on. And Daniel responds with verse 22 and verse 23. Notice the king answers him, or the king, the, the king calls to him, and he says, tell me what's going on. Tell me what is this, this interpretation of this of this." Inscription that has been written. And Daniel responds with verse 22. He actually begins in verse 18. And he tells the story of Nebuchadnezzar and God humbling the heart of Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 22, listen what he says. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all of this, but you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines have been drinking the wine from them, and you have praised the God of silver and gold and bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand, but the God in whose hands are your life and breath and your ways, and you have not glorified him. Did you see something that was said a lot in those two verses? You, 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 you. Some 14 times the word you or a derivative of the word you is used in verses 22 and verses 23. The king says, Daniel, come tell me what this means. And Daniel says, you are the problem, you are the problem, you are the problem, you are the problem, you are the problem. The king didn't ask for him to tell him what the problem was. He asked for him to, to tell him what this inscription says. And Daniel takes that as an opportunity to prophesy of the judgment of God that was coming because of himself and because of his pride. It reminds me of the book of Judges, chapter 6. The book of Judges... Chapter 6, the Midianites are coming and they are, they are pillaging Israel. They are they're destroying Israel. They're, they're, they're eating their crops, living in their homes. They're, they're, they're drinking their wine. They are literally pillaging and destroying all of Israel for year after year after year. And Israel finally cries out to God for mercy. And listen to God's response in verse 8. Verse 8 says that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel. That's what they needed, right? Israel cries out for a deliverer, 
And God's response was what? A deliverer, right? A prophet. Did God give Israel what they wanted? He gave them what they needed. They cried out. They said, Midian is killing us. They're, they're eating our crops. They're eating our, they're, they're, they're eating our livestock. They're driving us away. They're burning our houses. They're burning our crops. God, deliver us. And God says, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll send you a prophet. They said, oh, thank you so much. The prophet comes, and what does he do? He tells Israel why they're living in the midst of Midianite, in the Midianite conquest. He tells them why they're suffering under the hands of Midian. Belshazzar cries out to Daniel, I'm helpless. I've just soiled myself. I am scared to death. Tell me what this means. Daniel says, you don't want me to tell you what this means. He says, the problem, king, is you. The prophetic word of Daniel is you. But I want us to notice, go back to chapter 5 of Daniel. Very first sentence in chapter 5, verse 22. Yet you, his son Belshazzar, have humbled your heart, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all of this. Belshazzar knew of Nebuchadnezzar. He knew of Daniel. He knew of the God of Israel. He knew all of this. Reminding us that knowledge does not save church. Understanding, mental assent, does not bring about salvation. We have a social epidemic in this world today. Whenever there's something that is, that is plaguing our society, the solution is we need to educate people. You know why AIDS is running rampant? Because people don't know how AIDS is contracted. So we need to educate people. The reason that, that drug abuse is running rampant is because children haven't been taught the, the, the ills and the, the, the detrimental effects, the long-term detrimental effects of, of, of drugs and alcohol. So we need to educate people. You know why teen pregnancy and, and, and unwed mothers is, is a pandemic in our society is because we just need to educate people about the 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 about the the proper way to to have safe sex we just need to educate people education does not bring about deliverance it doesn't bring about salvation we can be educated and we can be educated fools the scripture tells us that the fool has said in his heart there is no God. It's not an issue of cognition. It's not an issue of intelligence. It's not an issue of understanding. Go with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Paul says the problem is not that they don't know. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them for since the creation of the world his invisible attributes, eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through all has been made so that all men are without excuse. Verse 21. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. The problem is not our understanding. The problem is our sinful heart. 
The problem was not that Belteshazzar didn't know that God had humbled Nebuchadnezzar. The problem is that Belteshazzar the problem is that Belshazzar thought that he was greater than Nebuchadnezzar, thought that he was impervious to the, to the power of God, thought that he was, he was too big for God to humble. Knowledge doesn't save us. Knowing who Jesus is doesn't save us. The scripture tells us that the demons in hell know that they believe and they shudder in fear. To know who Jesus is and to know what he has done does not bring about salvation. Daniel brings them the prophetic word. He said, you know this, and you do nothing. Hear the prophecy of Daniel in chapter 5. He says, O king, just in case you were misunderstanding, you're nothing. The interpretation is essentially telling the king, your days are numbered, your power is futile, you are nothing. All you have is nothing. All you have accomplished is nothing. All you have garnered is nothing. Repent of your sins and cry out to whom? A crucified Savior. Cry out to that cursed Messiah. Church, understanding who Jesus is, is not salvation. Knowing what the Bible says is not salvation. Having a mental, cognitive understanding of what the scripture says, of who Jesus is, believing cognitively what Jesus has done does not bring salvation. The scripture says in John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And in John chapter 3, verse 36, it says, He who obeys the Son shall see life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, and the wrath of God abides upon him. It is not intellectual assent. It is what you do with the knowledge. Do you believe? Do you trust? Have you placed your faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus so that it transforms your life? So that, so that your life is now not yourself? I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but the life which I now live, I now live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. Are we able to say with Paul that not only do I understand who Jesus is and what he has done, but now I have given myself to him. I beg you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifices, which is your reasonable act of service. Have you given your life to Jesus? If you've not given your life to Jesus and all you've done is come to this mental understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done, then church, I fear that in that last day that we will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me, ye cursed, for I never knew you. It is not mental assent or intellectual understanding that brings about salvation. It is brokenness. It is, it is, it is repentance of our sin and trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone for our salvation. This morning, I want to ask you to ask a very simple question. Have I ever trusted Jesus? Or am I like Belshazzar? Do I simply know all the answers? Let's pray. Lord, as your word 
has been presented this morning. God, may you find us obedient. Lord, there's someone here this morning who's prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, got wet in a baptistry, yet has never trusted Jesus. They've been a member of a church for a long time, yet they've never repented of their sin and given their life to Jesus. There's someone here this morning who, like Belshazzar, whenever the times of crisis has hit, that they have they've tried to fix things on their own. They've called in their magicians, their conjurers, their sorcerers. Lord, and you've called them to trust in Jesus. Lord, there's someone here this morning who's living in arrogance and pride. Lord, and you're calling them to humility that they may find grace. God, we pray this morning as your Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts. Lord, that you may encourage us. Lord, there's someone here this morning who needs to trust Jesus, who needs to repent of their sin. Lord, may they come. Your word tells us that all those who come to you, you will in no wise cast them out. Lord, may today be the day of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Stand.